Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Mirik Stiles, welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. How are you today? I'm good, thank you, Oliver. Um, All all things considering, can't complain. Tell me, whereabouts are you right now? I I, I can hear some lovely background sounds. So uh, you said you're in the countryside? Uh, I'm just uh, on the outskirts of London, not quite the countryside, but getting there. Uh, There's some fields nearby, if that counts. And... uh, how are you coping with the lockdown situation? What have you been up to? Um, well, it's it's strange, you know, uh, as as I'm sure um, everyone is experiencing. You know, I, I'm all set up to work remotely and that's great. And you're kind of getting on with things, um, chipping away at projects and what have you. And then, then you suddenly are reminded about the, uh, the event, as it were. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's just a bit weird sometimes because you keep on going back to that grim reality. Um, so, uh, ups and downs, I, I, I guess is the best way of describing it. But, um, you know, like I say, I, I really can't complain. I've still got, you know, projects I'm chipping away at and, um, you know, family's healthy. So yeah, all good. Thank you for asking. All right. Well, um, let's talk about the projects then. Uh, but before we do, can you please introduce yourself for our audience and tell a little bit more about your background? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so my name is, is Marek Styles. I'm the head of audio products at Abbey Road Studios. So I work with third party companies like Waves and Chandler, um, companies like Native Instruments, and we create uh, music making tools. So plugins, sampled instruments uh, and hardware, things like microphones and preamps. I would describe that as my day job, as it were. Um, but on the side, I'm I'm on the board member of Abbey Road Red, which is our, our tech incubation program at Abbey Road. And I also do quite a lot of experiments uh, with regards to spatial audio. So um, let's go right to the beginning. Um, how did you get into the audio? Um, how did I get into audio? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, can I even remember that far back? I think it was something along the lines of I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I was always into music from a young age and my parents really encouraged me to pursue music. And I took a shine to to, to drums. Uh, my, my dad um, was a drummer and there was always a drum kit in the house and I'd always sort of bash away at it from a very young age and um, kind of just, just went from there really, discovering music and bands and and joining bands doing you know making music and um then I went to I, I worked in a local guitar shop um in, in my teens and then went and did a sound engineering course um in a local studio and then another course at a college and it just sort of one thing led to another but um yeah sort of that's roughly how it how it all sort of came together for me I must say, when I saw the starting date of yours at Abbey Road Studios, I was quite astonished. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was at 1998? Yes, 1998. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, those were the days. Um, yeah, I started off at Abbey Road as a, a runner, actually. Kind of, um, you know, the classic kind of starting at the bottom and working your way up, I guess. So, so yeah, I... I got the job at Abbey Road, um, just being in the right place at the right time. I was, as I said, I was working in a guitar shop um, in, where I lived in Barnet, um, the Sound Garden. I think it's still there. And th- th- they would get quite a lot of work experience kids in from local schools. And, and one of these kids just randomly mentioned to me um, that there was a job going at Abbey Road Studios. Now, I just finished my sound engineering course and I was really scratching my head as to what to do. And I'd, I'd done the usual thing of, you know, you write letters to all the all the studios and I think they kind of, you know, just get filed under B for, for BIN. I, I, you know, I didn't hear anything back or if I did hear anything back, it was a polite rejection letter, all that sort of stuff. 
So it's just weird this kid just just said to me that there's a job going at Abbey Road, completely um, unprovoked, as it were. Um, and I was just like, okay, uh, that's interesting. Uh, this is before I even had a, a mobile phone. Um, I went down to the local uh, phone box down down the road, and there was a, a thing called Yellow Pages in there, which uh, maybe a lot of people may, may not even know of. Um, and anyway, looked up Abbey Road, gave them a call, and it was all a bit surreal. Sort of said, "Oh, here, there's a job going Abbey Road." They're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I was like, um, "Can I, can I interview for it?" And they're like, "Yeah, come on down." It was just all ridiculously relaxed and just very strange. And before I knew it, like the next day, I, I pulled a sickie at the, the guitar shop and and um, was found myself at Abbey Road talking to the studio manager and being shown around and very, uh, you know, like I say, very surreal. And then it was all over in about an hour. I wandered, wandered out, um, didn't hear anything for about a week and then got a phone call saying you've got the position if you want it. So, yeah, just one of those things. I must have made a strong impression in the interview because, um, I don't know, something, something, something went my way. Yeah, it's incredible how these stories sort of evolve. You just never know what to expect around the corner, but obviously something must have happened in your favour, as you said. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it was just even, it was strange from the point of view, it was the first time I'd actually been in a professional studio. So I was... Just like, not only was I nervous about, you know, being interviewed and whatnot, but I was just fascinated to be inside an, a, a, like a proper recording studio. I mean, the, the course I did in the local studio was literally like a, a an eight track quarter inch tape machine. Which, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, and a, and a really old clapped out console and literally carpet nailed to the, to the walls and stuff like that. Proper... <laughs> sort of, you know, spit and sawdust sort of studio, I suppose. Uh, it was a cool little place, but, um, and I learned a lot, but th- this was the first time I was actually in a real proper studio. Um, you know, the things they, the places they talked about at my, uh, at college. And I remember just, just um, I was shown into Studio One. Um, there was a break during a re- orchestral studio and I was introduced to the, um, the head engineer there at the time, a guy called Peter Cobbin. And I remember just being in the control room and I was, fascinated by what was actually on the walls and I was prodding the walls going what, what's behind this material because it was like I say it's the first time I was in a real studio and I was just like you know what do they put on the walls in a real studio I presume they don't just nail carpet to the, to the walls so yeah all, it was yeah a fascinating experience and uh yeah I guess it was just meant to be well you've been there for over two decades which is quite frankly impressive and uh and scary and scary, right? And exciting, I guess. But I'm I'm really curious to hear what it was like to kind of start at the very bottom and then make your way through. What was that journey for you? Over 20 years, you must have tried all sorts of things. You must have seen all sorts of things. I appreciate this is a very kind of unique and individual experience and everybody's journey is different. But just if you could share some insight, that'd be quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay. So of course I did um, at college, it was City of Westminster course. It was a fantastic course. The lecturers were really good. And obviously, yeah, this is going back over 20 years ago. So, I mean, there weren't a huge amount of um, of courses out there at that time for sound engineering, uh, music production, that sort of thing. I mean, now, you know, there, there, there's there's quite a few of them, uh, including at Abbey Road, either, you know, the Abbey Road Institute. So, so, so back then it was uh, more of a rarity, but it was, and I think people had said this to me, but it, it really was true that, you know, that you, I, I think I learned more within the first like couple of months being at Abbey Road than I did two years at, at, at college. And again, that, that isn't, you know, being negative or detrimental about any kind of courses or anything like that. I think they're fantastic. Um, it certainly gave me a great launch pad, as it were, um, and, and kind of I went into the studios grounded with a bit of information, uh, at least some basics, as it were. But but actually working, getting your hands dirty in a studio, was just a massive eye opener. It was it was pretty um, pretty full on. I seem to remember actually. Um, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the the first time I helped do a, a session setup for an orchestral recording um, for a film job. I can't for the life of me remember what it was, but. You know, you're, you're there till three or four in the morning doing a setup because, you know, especially for an orchestral recording on a film job, the, the orchestra comes in at 10 and 
you have to start then and there, like minutes, seconds count. You can't be messing around. So you have to do everything you can to double check, triple check that everything's working. So, and, you know, sometimes the session the day before didn't finish till nine or 10 o'clock at night. So I, I just remember like, like, wow, okay, this is like, you know, it's, it's quite a full on lifestyle. Um, and I, I would describe it as a lifestyle where you're, you're there, you know, doing very long days, but you're learning so much. You're involved in, I remember being involved in some like, you know, really cool, cool projects and just working with like the most amazing people and the most amazing teams. Uh, just, you, you just literally, I, was, I felt like I was a sponge just soaking up all this information. So yeah, it was um, an absolutely fascinating experience. I mean, I was the runner, so technically it was my job to, you know, go get the coffees and all that sort of stuff. But I I would just always try and, um, you know, sit in on any sessions I could or help out with any setups I could. Uh, I mean, it wasn't always practical, depending on the session. Uh, I always tried to uh, get my hands a bit dirtier, as it were. Um, and it paid off eventually. I remember, I think I was uh, technically or officially a runner for about uh, six months. And then someone moved on and someone left the studio. So I kind of got bumped up the chain, as it were. And I I then became, you know, officially an, an, an assistant engineer. Um, so, so yeah, it was a, a fascinating experience. And this was still, we're talking about way back in the day. So obviously we've got... Um quite a few years between then and, and now because what you, what you do today is is substantially different to how you started and when you were kind of focusing mainly previously isn't it yeah i mean when I, so when i when i started getting involved in in the recording world as it were i i definitely witnessed the transition period from computers being treated with suspicion to to actually actually being embraced, um, so so yeah. When I first started, rock and pop bands would record to twenty four track, forty eight track analog, um, as in two machines synced together um, was the norm, and an or- orchestral film job would record to a like a Sony thirty three forty eight digital forty eight track tape machine, um, and that was it. And yeah, like I say, like computers were regarded as uh, something that was not to be trusted. Just in terms of, I mean, for post-production, fine. I mean, I remember the um, the, the mastering engineers um, and uh, remastering engineers, they, they, they had always used computers from when I first started Abbey Road, things like Sadie uh, and the various retouching software. But in a studio, they were really not trusted because you know if, if one of those things crashed in the middle of recording an orchestra um that would not be a good thing or even crashing in the middle of recording a band that would not be a good thing so you know tape machines were rock solid and computers weren't particularly rock solid back then i'd you know it's fair to say um but i witnessed that transition period um and it wasn't quick but um i certainly remember Film jobs, things like um, like the Lord of the Rings. So that would have been, I think that was two thousand, maybe two thousand and one. The first one um, that was recorded. Gosh, I, can't believe it's been that long. I know it's scary, isn't it? Um, well, that's it. Actually, the first one wasn't even recorded on Pro Tools because they'd done some test recordings down in New Zealand, and um, Pro Tools had crashed. So the composer Howard Shaw was like, you know, I'm not sure we can trust this thing. So. Uh, which is fair enough. So um, it was it was recorded on the Sony forty eight track tape machines. It was the second film where they were recording directly into Pro Tools, but still there would be a tape machine running along at the same time as a backup because, like I say, the computer couldn't be trusted. Um, but I'd, I'd say probably from about two thousand and four two thousand and five. Um, computers became like completely like the norm in the studio from both rock and pop and also um, orchestral stuff. Um, and also just the, the the software, the DSP just improved like huge amounts. I think the first version of Pro Tools I used was Pro Tools 3. That would have been 1998. Um, and there was like some basic plugins on there, like the, the DigiDesign EQ and whatnot. And I think companies like Focusrite had just released a few plugins, but you know, you compare it to a piece of analog gear and it, and it, it was chalk and cheese. 
Whereas that isn't the case now. I mean, the um, and you know, for quite a while now, I think the the, the plugins just you know sound absolutely fantastic, and the you know the, the recording solutions in in computers are just you know brilliant, second to none. So, but it's it's funny, like you know, I, I clearly remember certain producers and engineers vowing they would never record or trust uh, using computer software, and and now obviously it's completely the norm, and that's the way it is, and and it's great. So yeah, I witnessed that. That that was that was interesting. Um, in fact, I just I just remembered my first um, my first experience of Pro Tools was I was um, assisting on the Beatles Yellow Submarine. I think it was called the Song Track. So it was the it was the accompanying album for the re-release of the film Yellow Submarine. And I think it was actually the song Yellow Submarine. The uh, engineer, the remix engineer, asked me to load in. The there was like uh, the drums were in mo- mono drums, but they were on their own individual track. I remember that. Uh, so I not isolated, but its own dedicated track. And I um, was asked to cut this kick and the snare drum out of every, out of the entire song, and place them on separate tracks on Pro Tools. So you ended up from one mono track to to a three track. Effectively, you had the 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 kit. I guess you could call it the kit overall. Then I had isolated kick drums and isolated snare drums. But this was before tab to transient or anything like that. So it took me like, oh God, best part of two days to do it, I think. By the time you've actually zoomed in, checked all your fades in and outs. And um, there may not even have been any fades. I think I just had to make sure I zoomed right into the zero point of the of the waveform before I hit cut. Anyway, yeah, those were the days. Um, yeah, very different now. But um, so yeah, I witnessed that transition. Um, so I worked on, I was an assistant engineer on film scores and rock and pop stuff. As I mentioned, the Lord of the Rings films, I did all three of those. I was the uh, mixing assistant. So I would capture all the stems. We did that up in the penthouse. Um, and then it was my responsibility to get those get those stems either to the editing department or, or sometimes just um, directly send it. We had this thing called the Fat Pipe, which was to buy that, those stems back then, a super fast internet connection directly to the dubbing stage in New Zealand. Um, so I would just just literally send the mixes down to down to those guys. So that 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 was that was a a serious education. That those films, just an amazing um, team. Um, yes, you know certain certain sessions and certain teams and certain um, projects you never forget, and that'd be one of them. Um, and then yeah, I did I did quite a lot of pop and rock stuff as well. So I I think really that was where my heart was at. So I, I assisted on a Paul McCartney album called Memory Almost Full, um, Muse, Origin of Cemetery, um, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, No More Shall We Part. And then, I, and then I slowly started dabbling into a bit of engineering here and there. I I remember doing a, a week in Studio 3 with Kanye West, doing vocals with him, um, just bits and pieces. But by that time, I started to... Uh, we used to have an interactive department next door. That's what it was. Um, so Abbey Road Studios is number three Abbey Road and number five next door is the building, which, you still, which, which we, st- we still have. And there used to be an interactive department there and they did like Blu-rays, DVDs, uh, website design, graphic design, that sort of thing. And I was kind of interested in that. Um, well, no, I was very interested in that. And it was kind of almost like a, not really a backward step, but definitely a sideways step, maybe a bit of a backward step, but they, they, they needed a studio coordinator. And I was just like, you know what? I wouldn't mind just giving that a stab. I'm just kind of interested in that world. And I wouldn't mind just getting outside my comfort zone a bit. So I applied for it and and, and got the position. Um, I think it was a bit weird for everyone, not everyone, but certainly my line manager at the time, um, studio manager Colette Barber she was a bit like you know <laughs> why are you doing that sort of thing and, um but um I'm glad I did it because I, I got to see like the other side of um well the more interactive side you know um and I I was kind of fascinated by all that like um project managing blu-rays um for you know some pretty cool films I did a Reservoir Dogs DB uh, blu-ray and um a few other films I can't remember the names of them now um but yeah, so I saw that side of things, uh, that side of the, the coin, as it were, and then off the back of that, I started getting involved in the audio products um, very early on with with Chandler, their um, head designer uh, Wade, and 
Um, Abbey Road had released a very small amount of plugins um, back then. And it was just an area I know they were keen to you know, develop and expand. And they, they asked me if I could look into that. And um, so that's kind of how I got into that. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into audio products. And then the, the whole red thing, the incubation program that started um, because uh, a guy I used to work with, uh, John Eads, um, in audio products, um, he he quite rightly said, you know, um, the stuff we do is based on our intellectual property from from back in the day when Abbey Road had its own internal R and D department, or or would work very closely with the EMI R and D team over in the factories in Hayes. And he was like, why don't, why don't we start exploring how we could get back into R&D ourselves? You know, that, like, it's great we're doing the stuff from the past, but let's also look into the what next, which was a pretty valid point, I thought. Um, so we just started exploring how we could get back into, get Abbey Road into R&D again, because the whole, that whole side of EMI, so, so for those who don't know, Abbey Road was owned by EMI. It was an EMI studio. Um, and EMI had studios all around the world. Um, and EMI had um, a factory in Hayes, um, and they would make all sorts from recording gear that would that would go out to all the studios around the world, but also things like TVs and radios and even things like CAT scan machines, um, all sorts. I think they even did munitions during the war. I mean, Hayes was like a it was like a factory town, and it was an EMI factory town. I mean, if you lived in Hayes, chances were you um, worked for EMI. So the whole R&D side of things kind of went away slowly over the years. Um, and from an audio point of view, it went away probably by the early 80s. Um, because things like mixing consoles and tape machines by then were f- fully established by companies like SSL and Neve and Studer. Um, it just didn't make, from what I can tell, it just didn't make any economic sense anymore to, to carry on building our own gear. So slowly it, it all got kind of got crunched down a bit and to, to the point where it was just all shut down. So we kind of lost that that R&D connection, I guess. Um, so John Eads and I were like, well, you know, how can we, you know, get R&D back together? How can we get Red back together? Because that, that was the name of the department, the Record Engineering Development Department. And we were never going to get the budget to start our own R&D department. I mean, that would have been like stuff of fantasy. So we were like, practically, how can we do this? Um, so we started getting in touch with um, academic um, uh, researchers and, and institutions um, like University of York, University of Huddersfield, Imperial College, um, Stanford, uh, and just started immersing ourselves in that in that world, which was, to me, that was a bit alien to me at that time. I didn't, I didn't do the uni thing. John did. But then off the back of that, we um, started, we were introduced to the world of, you know, startups and, and spin outs from those universities. And then this, this, you know, again, it's like right, right place, right time, certain events coming together to collide and all that. Our new um, MD of Abbey Road, Isabel Garvey, had just started and she was like really into this concept and, and gave us her, you know, her full backing. Um, so the red department or the, the red incubation program w- was born, as it were. So I was on the board for that. I helped set it up. Um, and I still um, I'm involved with that as much as I can. I certainly don't run it. I mean, Kareem Fanous is the head of innovation at Abbey Road. That's kind of his his baby, as it were. But um, I, I love um, helping out whenever I can. It's a, it's a great, great initiative. Well, that's a perfect segue to my next set of questions, which is about Abbey Road Red Incubation Program. Uh, you gave a really nice introduction about and kind of historical context, how it all started, which is fascinating. Can you just in a few words explain what red program is today yeah i mean when it when it launched or when we were first looking into the initiative of launching an incubation program there wasn't i mean there are quite a few incubators around but there wasn't anyone who was at that time um certainly in europe um focusing specifically on on music technology incubation I think there may have been a place in Nashville at the time, um, but that was it, you know, and we were like, well, you know, there's some great incubators out there, but there's no one specifically targeting music. Um, and, you know, we're Abbey Road, we got, we got access to not only the fantastic, you know, engineering resources, technical teams, um, 
and um you know the 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 from a technical side at Abbey Road but also our parent company is is now Universal Music um so that I mean there's a you know crazy amount of resources at Universal everything from you know marketing to to business affairs um syncing licensing you know you name it there's a department for everything so um we we pulled together a bit of a crack team from from both Abbey Road and Universal um and what what we ended up with is a very i would say i would describe it as a very bespoke incubation program so the companies we work with 15 companies now i think we're at they they you know they let us know where they would like assistance as it were what areas they're having difficulties with or where they where they've got stumbling blocks or what's concerning them and then we can tailor their program specifically to their needs um because you know nine times out of ten those resources exist either in abbey road or within universal music so i would describe it as a very bespoke program what sort of companies tend to get involved with you guys and can you share any success stories the the very first company so this is how i got i mean we're going to this in, in a bit i guess but this is how i got into spatial audio so the very first company we took on board was a company called osic their concept was um uh, 3D sound or surround sound over headphones. Uh, I mean, an amazing team, like really talented team, a uh, great product. Uh, unfortunately, it, you know, it didn't quite work out for, for those guys in terms of um, they, you know, y- you learn the hardware, I guess, um, anything involving um, hardware manufacturing, you're kind of making your life even more difficult because you're reliant on, you know, companies delivering at certain times, maybe factories in China or what have you. And, it just adds another level of complexity. So they that didn't work out for them. But um, like I say, they're an amazing team. And uh, I credit those guys for opening my eyes up to this this, this world of, of convincing surround sound over headphones. But yeah, anyway, th- that aside, um, we've had everything from, yeah, spatial audio, artificial intelligence, music licensing solutions, um, virtual reality solutions, automatic mastering, Things like uh, Vocula, which is an intelligent AI microphone, which turns your um, mouth noises into into beats or to bass lines, so sort of beatboxing, I suppose. Uh, Kotodama, um, that was a really interesting company we worked with. That was um, that they produced what they call like a lyric speaker, uh, which is a beautiful device which would listen to the incoming uh, audio and 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 display the lyrics of the song that was being played in a really kind of beautiful, intuitive way. So all, all sorts, really. Um, when I say all sorts, I mean, they're all, they've all got music-related kind of DNA in, in them. But it's quite, uh, it's really varied, the sort of companies we've worked with. And it's, it's just been, it, you know, it's been massively inspiring to, you know, to work with the, the you know, the, the, the CEOs of these companies and the teams in these companies, because, the, the, you know, the, the passion and the drive you see from these teams is is really really inspiring um so it's um it's been it's been an amazing journey um i mean like i say like 15 companies um raising raising um funds is always the big thing on any startups um kind of agenda as it were and uh you know collectively you know between the companies we've raised 40 million dollars um, I mean, and collectively, I think they've all got an evaluation of something like over two hundred million dollars now. So it's um, it's been a real roller coaster, um, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's very substantial. It's a pretty serious sum. I just realised the Sally Kellaway, um, who was on our podcast previously, I believe episode four, it's going all the way to the beginning. Um, she used to be a creative director at OSIC. That's how I met Sally. Yeah, I remember uh, it was at AES convention in New York a few years ago, and yeah, yeah, I met Sally um, and and uh, Kadar as well from OSIC, who went on to work for Magic Leap. Um, yeah, obviously a hugely creative team, and they've all gone on to do uh, equally amazing things in their own right. Um, so, which is unsurprising, really. I mean, like I say, they're they're, they're a really cool, cool, cool team to work with. I just wanted to expand on how Abbey Road Studios actually help those companies that get involved with the program with their resources and contacts and how does the program work for both sides for those who apply as well as the Abbey Road Studios? 
Well, yeah, I mean, like as I said, I mean, from from the company's point of view, it's um, we've got a, a network of in, of investors we have um, access to. Um, like I said, it's very bespoke, but it normally works along the lines of a um, like a demo day at the end of the um, incubation period. And that, that's when we kind of get all the companies in the room, uh, all the investors in the room, um, and they talk about their experience with Abbey Red and where they are now and, and what they're looking to do next. So that their moment to sell themselves, I guess, in, in the room uh, to our investor network. But the whole, you know, the program before that, like I say, is very bespoke, working with uh, like a company that does um, sync management. Um, you know, they're probably going to want access to... Um, uh, licensing advice from a record label's point of view. So, you know, things like, you know, commercial affairs at the end of the day, um, which may be out of the um, startup's comfort zone. So, you know, the universal lawyers and, and business affairs teams can can guide them and help them and show them the ropes to a certain degree and point them in the right direction of things to look out for, make introductions. So it's, it's a network of, of contacts at the end of the day. And get, get and getting said company in front of the right people. From from our point of view, from Abbey Road's point of view, um, again it just alludes back to Abbey Road being involved again in in early R and D, getting in, immersed in that world again. Um, we haven't got our own R and D department, um, so we're working with startups to see the lay of the land and seeing what what companies are up to and what what the exciting things um, these creative teams are doing with technology and how they're using technology, it, it sort of keeps us in the loop. And it's just, like I say, it's really fascinating, really exciting. And um, it's, it's been a, it's been a great, it's a great thing for both sides. You know, we learn and they learn. I wanted to ask you about organizing these hackathons, which are, I believe there was one not too long ago taking place. Are these events designed to, cultivate that kind of talent and inspire people to kind of go on and create those startups and and develop those ideas further to get them to the stage where they can be uh, considered for the program officially or is it something else altogether the hackathons um yeah we did our second one back in the last year um really successful but both of them were great fun they they're like a natural organic or yeah organic extension of red it's it's about the creative community and, and getting everyone together in the in the same room. So, you know, it makes sense that some of the companies uh on the red program or or people thinking about going onto the red program are involved in the hackathon, but not everyone is is has anything to do with the red program. Um it's just the creative hacking community, you know, bigger picture. Um so I think the uh the last one uh, there was about 80, 80 people in the room in Studio 2. I mean, it's, it was busy, uh, very vibey, very exciting. Um, so, yeah, it's it's like an organic extension. And um, we, we, we're going to do more of them because, um, yeah, they, they've been awesome. They've been really good. All right, Merrick, let's switch the gears and talk about Spatial Audio Forum. You kind of touched on how your interest and journey started into Spatial Audio from, from the moment where you were involved with OSIC Startup. Can we talk about Spatial Audio Forum and uh, when was it launched and uh, what its purpose? Yeah, so the Spatial Audio Forum was launched because, I mean, yeah, when I first started dipping my toe in the water, as it were, with Spatial Audio, 3D Audio, you know, what kind of whatever you want to call it, I got confused quite quickly. Um, and I'm I'm pretty sure a lot of people out there at the time and still now um, might be a bit confused, but, um, but it's, um, it was, it, to me, it just felt like the wild West. Um, it was, it was really difficult to um, kind of get my head around like everything. So, and when I say that, I mean, from a consumer's point of view, from a creator's point of view, um, you know, yeah, from a consumer's point of view and from a creator's point of view, there was lots of different terms flying around. There was a few different definitions as, as to what it is and why it is and how it is. Different tools by different companies, different formats. Um, 
different recording techniques, different mixing techniques, different rendering techniques. Uh, it was just like a, a bit of a minefield. And whoever I asked, whoever I spoke to, um, they were having a similar experience. So, and I was, and it, 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 at that time, I mean, it still is kind of quite small, but at that time, the community for, for that sort of thing was was even smaller, I would say. And I was I was just meeting the same people, you know, yourself included at various events. And um, it just made sense um, to, to maybe try and get, get some people together on a, on a semi-regular basis. And when I, when I say get people together, I mean, because I was meeting people from academic research, people from VR, people from AR, people from the gaming world, people from film, composition, producers, engineers, um, broadcast. So it f- made sense to bring uh, representatives from, from those different areas and kind of chew the fat, as it were, and try and demystify um what spatial audio is and what it means and and what we should be looking out for in the future so there was that side of the spatial audio forum and then i started doing joint research projects i guess you'd call them the first one i did was with um dr gavin kearney and his team at university of york uh which is uh, again a proper education that was we, we did a, we recorded a band in studio three at abbey road and uh, the student at the time was um hashim who i'm sure you know hashim riaz um, who ended up working at abbey road actually and it was about uh capturing a band uh in three degrees of freedom so we had 360 video cameras in the room and a band around the camera and various spatial audio recording um, techniques, um, microphone arrays. Um, Hume, Dr. Hume Cook Lee from uh, University of Huddersfield joined us on that and, and helped set up with some spatial audio arrays. And I was, at the time, I was just like, whoa, you know, I, I didn't, I had never heard of a Hamasaki cube before or an equal segment recording array. Um, so it was just a huge eye opener for me. Um, and then we, um, we did basically effectively, it was a mix, mix experiment, you know, what arrays worked best with the video footage in, um, in a, in a 360 environment. Um, when I say that, um, sort of in VR kind of looking around, um, head, head tracking and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, not only the arrays, but, you know, what elements of close microphones do you need? You know, the normal recording process and, and how do they interact with each other and all that sort of thing. So that, so that, was, that was amazing. Um, and then roughly around about the same time, a film composer, Stephen Barton, contacted Abbey Road saying he had some sessions coming up. Uh, I actually ended up being... Um, I didn't know at the time, but it was actually test recordings for um, the uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order game, and he 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 was talking about spatial audio and and various kind of exotic software, as it were. Which um, the studio manager, you know, no thought of the studio manager whatsoever, because like I say, at the time this was all still relatively new to everyone. Was kind of like I, I I'm not really sure what Stephen's talking about here. Do you mind talking? with him and you know having a phone call with him and anyway i spoke to Stephen, and we were just talking the same language and i i got what he was trying to achieve and what he was talking about i've been playing around with similar similar things so we um just sort of teamed up and, and started um yeah i mean it was amazing really uh you know studio one the lso and a couple of days of studio time to do some experiments which is just when you think about it is nuts but um that was uh, that was pretty amazing. Um, so I just learned again, just learned so much off the back of that, uh, and we tried everything. Um, I think Sennheiser loaned us their Ambio Cube setup. Um, we had Hamasaki Cubes equal segment arrays, third order, first order, second order microphone, ambisonic microphones, um, close miking with ambisonic, distance miking with ambisonic. Um, putting the arrays in the orchestra, putting the arrays outside the orchestra, just everything we could think of. Just just literally record as much as we can. And then we're we're sort of do some tests afterwards. Um, pretty much similar to what we did really with um with the uh, University of York, but this time not, not with a band, with an orchestra. 
Um, so that was amazing. Um, and then again, uh, I did another experiment with University of York and we did, went from three degrees of freedom to six degrees of freedom. And, and for me, I mean, that was a massive eye-opener. That, that, that for me, that was it. That's what got me really excited. When we started playing around with game engines like Unity and started, you know, the user could walk through the audio teleporting in VR. I was just gobsmacked by that. I thought that was incredible. And that's when, that's when it really started to come together for me. Um, and that's still what I'm exploring now and what I, what I really love. Um, yeah, I, I, we, we did more test recordings with Steven. Eventually did the real sessions for Jedi Fallen Order, um, which was really exciting. Um, a few of the arrays got used in, in the final game. And uh, another cool thing was um, Steven had some downtime in Studio 2. So we recorded a string octet. Um, so um, violins, violas, and, and cellis. Uh, and we got them to play Eleanor Rigby, and we put them in the round. So, it's, you know, obviously, well, not obviously, but if people don't know, that you know, normally record string sections and orchestras kind of from the perspective of you being standing in front where the conductor is, if you like, in front of the band. But we recorded this octet in the round. So um, the two violins sections were in front and then the celli and the viola were behind. So again, we just um, we knew a bit more about what to expect then from recording techniques and what, what was working and what wasn't working so much. Um, so we had um, ambisonic, high-order ambisonic microphone in the middle with a spatial array in the middle spatial array higher up and then I, I put a, a, a sequence of microphones in the circumference of the room to kind of fill in some blanks um, with normal close spot micing as you normally would do to kind of get that presence but um, and then I created a little VR experience out of that I mean the, the beauty of Unity is uh, I mean there's obviously Unreal as well which is fantastic uh, but I just I just did this this project in Unity uh, is that you can um, you know, without being an amazing graphics person or, or coder, which I certainly am not, you know, just using the asset store, you can find all sorts on there, like scripts of code and and um, and um, little sort of graphic prefabs that people have made up, and um, even and even just making shapes yourself and taking a photograph on your. I remember taking a photograph on my phone of the floor in Studio Two. And just wrapping that around uh, a floor plane, and then you've you've suddenly got the floor of Studio Two in your VR experience. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing what you can get away with. But anyway, so started just putting together this little sort of VR experience of you know being able to wander through the string octet as they play, and you can stand in the middle, or you can wander right up to the violins and stick your head in the violins and hear the bow on the strings, or you can go and stand in the corner of the room and get a more you know kind of a roomy kind of feel, and then just 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 taking it step by step. And then I was thinking, well, what about if we, if I do a rough, well, just do a mix, stereo mix of the recording and then play that through um, the, we released um, control room simulation software called um, uh, Waves, with Waves, uh, Studio 3 NX. So I, I played the stereo mix through the Waves NX. So you get that, that, that feeling of the sound being out in front of you over a pair of speakers. And then I, I attached that audio into um, a graphic representation, very rough, of the control room with some speakers and a little mixing console. So, you know, when you teleport from the studio into the control room, it sounds like you're in a completely different environment sound-wise. And it sounds like you're hearing the music through a mixing console, through some speakers. So I was setting, just exploring with different sound options and different sound zones and things like occlusion, um, you know, just stuff that was way outside of my comfort zone. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you can tell that I come from the, the world of 2D, as it were, as in like, you know, linear audio, you, you know, like a door is linear. You've got audio in it and it goes from, you know, it scrolls from left to right and it's in the 2D world. But going into 3D and, and non-linear audio was um, and using game engines as a way of expressing musical content was completely new to me, completely alien to me, and was a very steep learning curve. I mean, it really was. Uh, I, I was just really fascinated by what you could do. Um, some really great pieces of software out there. I started off in Google Resonance, which I thought was really cool. That was mind-blowing. Um, that, that's how I kind of started. And 
then I started getting into uh, uh, Blue Ripple um, software development kit because it, it allowed me to work in higher order and the Sonics, which really was really key for, for where I wanted it to go. So, so yeah, there, there's this this whole world of of being able to manipulate audio in a 3D non-linear way using game engines, which is, uh, like I say, I just love it. I think it's fascinating. I think it's a, a really interesting way that artists will be able to express their work in the future. Um, I mean, there's, there's obviously a few artists doing it now, but not a huge amount. I mean, they, you know, Bjork springs to mind and maybe Suga Ross. And, uh, but I, I want to see more and more artists embracing this way of being able to present their work, their art to, to, to their fans. Um, and, and I, I can see why at the moment it, it isn't in any way a mass consumer because like I say, it's a steep learning curve. It's not quite as intuitive as it could be, put it that way. But um, it's getting there and it seems to be getting better every day to me. So, um, so yeah, that's um, I, I've even forgotten what the original question was. I've been ranting on so much. I really would like to hear your thoughts on quite recent trend uh, coming from Dolby, really pushing Dolby Atmos into music industry. And uh, would love to hear your thoughts on how do you see spatial audio or even spatial and interactive audio kind of infiltrating the very well-established world of music industry, which for a long time has been um, very much two-dimensional and very linear as well. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird because, yeah, I mean, the, the music world uh, or the sound world, let's say, for a vast majority of of the human race is is 2D. But, you know, we've had elements of 3D audio or surround sound since, uh, since you know, the mid-30s. I think the first system was Fantasound um, by Disney. Um, and the idea was it was, um, it was a, uh, a road show. I think it was only played in like maybe 12, 12 or so theatres in the States at the time of the film Fantasia. Um, there were speakers all around the audience and um, hearts would pan around. Um, you know, so this is going back a long time. And then, you know, cinemas always push, push the boat here uh, and they still do. And that's how we've ended up with uh, Dolby Atmos. Um, mono to stereo and then there was three, you know, there was a four, four channel and then, you know, five, one, and, you know, it's, they kept on bumping up the the chain. But I, I think, I think it became like a standard. I think it was in the mid seventies um, with Dolby stereo. So that introduced a center channel and then a, an array of, of rear and side speakers. Uh, I think it was a mono signal, but it was, there was an array all around the audience. So you, you had these different dimensions in the, in the, in the cinema and so, yeah, I mean, cinema has always done its thing and done it very well and, and really pushed the boundaries as to what can be achieved with sound. Um, and it's always been really exciting. For, from a consumer's point of view, though, it's, it's, it's always, it's been a bit messy. Um, I think the, the first domestic introduction to anything beyond stereo to the consumer was with uh, the format called Quad, which was in the early 70s. And I mean, it's, what it says on the tin, it it was four speakers. So not only did you have left and right, you had a, a left and a right rear. And uh, I mean, I wasn't there at the time, um, but uh, I, I just get the impression it was a bit of a disaster. Um, one, I think the technology was was pretty unreliable because I mean, this was coming off of a record still, off vinyl. So there was there was some sort of decoding, encoding, matrix thing going on. Um, so I, I don't think that was the most reliable of things. But bigger bigger problem than that I think was the fact that you know you're just you're just asking people to add these extra speakers into their living environment, um, which just isn't practical. Um, there's always a there'd be a door in the way, or just having four speakers in the room isn't practical, and um, you know people's living rooms aren't really geared up for that. So it was a bit of a bit of a failure. From from a record label's point of view, but there was some there was some really cool stuff done on it. I mean, Alan Parsons did a mix of Dark Side of the Moon in Quad. Um, the, I mean, the labels really tried to push for it. Um, I think I even think John Lennon's first album was mixed in in Quad, um, Plastic Ono Band. So there, there was a lot of stuff done in this format. 
But it just it just kind of died a death, really. It just didn't really take off. And, you know, it's understandable because, like I say, it was inconvenient for the consumer. And around about the same time, um, Michael Gerzen at Oxford University um, was, came out with the Ambisonics concept. Like, amazing. Um, ahead, way ahead of its time. Um, I mean, luckily now it's it's found, you know, Michael Gerzen's work has, has found a home um, through through VR and, and the gaming world. But, um, you know, back then it was, again, impractical. Um, and I... I, I got the impression that any any attempt that, that the Ambisonics team would have made to have made it um, mainstream or, or try and get the record labels excited, they would have just been like, well, we did quad and that was a failure. So, you know, no, thank you very much. I guess my point to all this is that it's always been a bit of a hard sell, I think. Um, even more recently, it's like 20 odd years ago when DVD came onto the scene, um, suddenly, you know, you could get these these surround sound uh, this surround sound and some information onto onto these discs. Um, so there was five one and eventually six one, and there was there was Dolby and there was DTS and um, and and people people kind of started showing an interest. I seem to remember um, there were a lot of little satellite systems available to the public. Um, you know, you had your little left, center, right, left surround, right surround satellite speakers with a a little boombox. Um, they they tried to make it as easy and intuitive as possible, but still, it was it was kind of inconvenient at the end of the day. And uh, I mean, I remember going around friends' houses, and they'd have the center channel wired up to the rear left, and all sorts was going on. It was just a dog's dinner. Um, and you know, there would be a shelf in the way or a door in the way, and uh, people had very funky surround sound system setups. And I think people just lost interest in the end. Um, but again, the labels really pushed for it. I remember um, they all the majors were, were remixing, especially live concert footage for release on DVD. Um, you know, that they they put budgets behind it, um, and they always do. You know, the labels. You know, credits to the labels. They always do push these formats like i mean we're seeing it now with you know that, that, that's on to the next thing you know with dolby atmos and things like sony 360 reality the labels are really behind it and are and um content is being remixed for these new formats um but what interest what i find, think is interesting now is that all the previous attempts to go beyond stereo have been inconvenient whereas now we're kind of in this new frontier to make it sound a lot grander than it actually is. But um, yeah, this this kind of, it, it's now convenient, I would say, from the point of view that, you know, we mentioned companies like OSIC where you can you can get convincing surround sound over headphones and it's get, that's, that's just getting better all the time. You know, binaural rendering, um, you know, Dolby have got an option for it. Sony 360 have got a reality, uh, an option for it. There's, I've mentioned the Waves NX technology. We did, we did Studio 3 and we, not only did we do stereo, we did five one and seven one as well. Um, there's some others out there, you know. So there's this convincing way now of, of getting, you know, great surround sound over headphones, but also sound bars. You know, there's some great, some great hardware sound bars coming out. Um, you know, devices like the the Sennheiser sound bar and the the new Amazon Echo Studio, and that there'd the be more. Um, again, the whole point of that, or the thing that's interesting, is that it's convenient. You know, long, no longer do you have to have an, a load of a load of speakers all around your room. And and don't get me wrong, if you can have a load of speakers around your room, you'll 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 take it to the next level. And some people will still be interested in doing that. But you you can get some really, from what I've heard, impressive results um, from from things like the Echo and the, and the Sennheiser Ambio. Um, so, and that's just from one source in front of you. And it's using various um, kind of reflections and, and um, DSP and and clever, clever maths at the end of the day to, to give you that immersive sound. Um, but the point is, is that it's convenient and it sounds good. I think we're we're, we're at a different we're in a different place now with Dolby Atmos um, than than certainly we were with Five One for the, for the consumer twenty odd years ago, and obviously going back even further with things like Quad and Ambisonics. Well, I think that's a a pretty good place to end our interview. Um, the I guess the core message is that the future of immersive audio is is bright and exciting for for everybody who's involved. Um, but before we wrap up, um, I really wanted to avoid the c word, but um, 
However, I still want to ask, besides all the stopbacks that came as the result of it, um, I'm not sure which C word you thought of first, that or the other. Yeah, <laughs> my mind is boggling. <laughs> uh, what's in store for you personally and Abbey Road Studios in the near future? Yeah, Abbey Road is always about and always will be about um, helping artists to be creative uh, and, and doing everything we can to, to make that as exciting and, and intuitive um, and as painless as possible. Um, so we will continue to do that. Um, I mean, we, we kind of, you know, besides Red, we, we've gone into other kind of areas outside of our comfort zone. Um, so we built a Dolby Atmos mix stage in in the garden, as it were, Um uh, but when I say that, I mean it's it's a cinema, effectively. Um, it's a um, premier accredited Dolby um, mix mixing room. So that's been really exciting because, um, yeah, traditionally Abbey Road's done film scoring since the very early eighties. Um, but now we're doing film dubbing as well, which um, is is a new area for us. Um, so you know, we're kind of we're kind of always going outside of our comfort zones, which I think which I think is really important. Um, and we've got things like online mixing, online mastering. Um, we release uh, an app um, called Topline, which allows um, you know it's, lets musicians and, and um, artists kind of just record into their phone. But it's just just a, a level up from just using um, voice memos. You know, you can actually sort of layer some tracks and then easily send it on to someone else for collaboration. So just it's just whether you're in the studios um, or whether you're outside of the studios, we, we just want to make it as easy, as painless and intuitive and creative as possible for artists to, to do their thing. Um, and, then, and then for me, I mean, I'm, I'm um, always exploring um, the workflows for, for spatial audio, um, especially at the moment with re- regards to Six Degrees of Freedom, because, uh, you know, a lot of, Massive credit to the gaming world here, but a lot of this software, especially obviously the game engines, but a lot of the um, audio developer kits in in, in Unity and, and Unreal that they, they, they were originally designed with the game developers in mind, which is which is cool. But uh, I, I'm kind of from the, the side of things like I think the music producer will want to better do this, or the music producer will, might get a little bit confused by the wording you're using here. Why don't you try this wording, which is more in line with, you know, doors and stuff like that. So, so to make it a bit more um, user-friendly from the traditional music creator's point of view, if you don't come from a gaming world. So that, that's kind of what I, I'm, that's what I'm interested in. Just Again, just to, just to break down some of these barriers a bit more. Obviously you had an amazing career and journey going through different stages, always pushing yourself. Can you share one piece of advice with our audience that really helped you in your career? <laughs> um, one piece of advice. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget doing, um, I was doing a, a mix session in, in one of the studios at Abbey Road when I was you know, young and the engineer asked me to do some, some edits in Pro Tools. Um, and he said, I'll be back in a bit. And I went and hacked away, as it were, chopping away. And um, and then when he came back, he listened to it and he, he noticed a click here and a click there. And I was, I was a bit embarrassed. And he go, and I remember just saying, him saying to me, you know, always, you know, always check your work. If you do something, don't just move on to the next thing. If you do it, go back, check it, make sure it's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing before you move on to the next thing. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, little, little piece of advice is like, uh, experiences and advice like that you pick up over the years, which, you know, probably sounds really simple now and basic, but, um, you know, little things like that are important. Um, so that's the first thing that popped into my head. I hope that's a satisfactory answer. Yeah. Always check your work. It, it needs to be integrated into your schedule, no matter what. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And save, save, save. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And back up, back up. If it doesn't exist in three places, it doesn't exist. Well, especially using like game engines. I mean, oh, if you don't, if you don't regularly um, kind of export your work, as a, as, a, as a nice safe package and put it somewhere out the way that's completely safe because the amount of times that a bit of code's got changed and it's just it just seems to break absolutely everything and it's just soul destroying sometimes but um so yeah always always back up and save as or export 
your your work into an into whatever format you need to export it in, just so it's safe and do it on a regular a regular basis. So there's no so there's no tears later on. Mirik, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for having me. It's been good fun. Stay safe and take care. Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the immersive audio podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Michelle Chan and included music by Inobs Bergamo. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.